Let us be turning in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 34 for our initial reading. Brethren, I must say that I do indeed count it a privilege to stand before you this morning. I ask your prayers. I also would ask that you lift up your eyes about you and take note of God's many rich blessings upon us all today. The very fact that you are here, that you are so well, that you're able to lift up your eyes and your voices and praise your God, what a tremendous thing for which we ought to give thanks to the Lord. Today's sermon is entitled, Making Room for God's Praise. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Let's pray once more. Father, please come near and help us all. Speak to our hearts. Work by Your Spirit. Get glory to Your name for Christ's sake and in His name we pray. Amen. Well, some many years ago now, I was privileged to attend several predominantly black Baptist churches. I don't know if any of you have had such a, a privilege, but two specifically come to mind, both of which were in Oklahoma. One was a rural church with a very rural flavor, more casual than formal, and the service much more extemporaneous than planned. Anyone who felt led of the Lord to say a little something generally did. The other church was a slightly larger church, much more beautiful in its architecture. Although small, it was still very elegant. And the pastor of this church was what I would say a little more accomplished, a bit more refined in his studies and in his manner. And the services in that church were more planned and more orderly in nature. And you could expect to get out before 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. But noticeable in both congregations was a common custom. I'm sure common not only to those two churches, but to other churches in their circles. And the custom was this. Anytime anyone would address the congregation in any way, whether they were about to pray or receive the offering or make an announcement to the church about something that happened or was going to happen, whoever spoke, they would preface whatever it was with a patent formula that deviated almost not one iota, one person from the other. They all would say something like this, giving honor to God and to the pastor and to the members of the pulpit, to the officers of the church, and to the people of God. And then they would say whatever it was they intended to say. 
If someone else spoke, giving honor to God and to the pastor and to the officers of the church, the members of the pulpit and to the people of God, and they would then go on and say whatever it was they had in mind. And this was repeated as often in the service as anyone did anything. It was their way of giving honor to whom honor was due. Showing respect for God's own authority. Acknowledging His authority over them and over everything else. And also a showing of respect for what they perceived as God-given authority among men. So, giving honor to God first and above all else. Because He is worthy to receive honor... And they recognized that, and it was part of their, their culture, and it was intentionally part of their church culture. Giving honor to God was, to those brethren, a big deal. So it became part of what they did. They repeated this formula throughout the service. Now, while I don't suggest that we must adopt the same custom. I do suggest that we all need to make room in our lives, both individually, and I would say first individually, but also corporately, to give honor to God. Now, you folks won't upset me one bit if you help me a little bit with an occasional, amen, that's the truth. Um, We do need to make room in our lives individually and corporately, to give honor and praise and blessing to God. And I would say a lot of praise compared to what we're accustomed to, compared to what we generally feel like doing. We actually need to force the issue just a bit because He is worthy to be praised. Not because we feel like praising, but because God Feels like being praised at all times. He is worthy to be praised. Now, as providence would have it, in our first focus this morning, concerning the worthiness of God to receive honor, we look to Revelation 4. And I'll pick up in verse 8. Now, you know the context, which you've heard read this morning. The Apostle John's vision of the throne of God. And he beholds the throne of God and the one who sat upon that throne and the glory that he beheld. Now, verse 8 of that chapter is where we will pick up. The four living creatures. Now, I must say that interpretively over the years, I have wondered what these four living creatures are. And I'm quite certain that some of you who are master interpreters of the book of Revelation could probably set me straight shortly. And if you would do that after the service, I will not be at all offended. It's possible, I think, that they may be representative of the chief of the angelic host of elect angels. But I'm not certain of that. They appear to have varying Uh, attributes. They each, however, have six wings full of eyes around and within, we are told. And they do not rest day or night. And their activity is this, the thing that keeps them from sleeping. They have no rest in day or night. And thank heavens, they need no rest. 
Their delight, their strength, their energy comes from their praise of God. And they say, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is worthy, brethren, according to these living creatures who praise Him day and night unceasingly. Worthy in a, in a sense because He is holy in a Trinitarian sense. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Blessed Spirit is holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the God. He was before all things in eternity past. He is now in the created realms of time and space. He is to come. He is transcendent above it all. But He is worthy because of this triune, eternal holiness, this distinct otherness that God is. He is unlike any of His creatures. And He's worthy to be glorified because He is different, different, different on every level. He is superlative on every level. The Lord identifies Himself in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty and these four living creatures, praise Him day and night without rest, because He's worthy to be praised. Verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, I ask you, when is that all the time? Well, the 24 elders. Now, these are a little easier interpretively to identify. The 24 elders, representative brethren of all the redeemed elect of God of all ages, from the Old Testament era, the New Testament era, these are, as it were, the representatives of all the redeemed people of God. So all the host of the redeemed are by their representatives worshiping the Lord. But notice what they do. They fall down before Him. I ask you, when we worship God, do we ever really fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever? And then casting their crowns, any honors they have, any honors that have even rightly been ascribed to them, any authorities that they may possess, what do they do? They cast their crowns, acknowledge that any authority, any honors they have, they truly belong to the Lord God who's the author of them all. So they humble themselves, falling down, casting their crowns before the throne. Now what do they say? To Him who sits on the throne. They say, You are worthy. I want you to say that word for a moment, would you? Worthy. One more time. Worthy. You are worthy, O Lord. You are worth it. You are worth receiving these things. You are, you are deserving, O Lord, to receive. Now receive. That is to, to, for these things to be ascribed unto Him. He is glorious, is He not? 
Amen. He is glorious. There's nothing of the being of God that is not glorious. And honor. He is honorable, is He not? He is, he is deserving to be acknowledged as honorable, as glorious and honorable and power. Power is to be ascribed to God. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The prophet asks and the answer is a resounding no. Well, why is God worthy? Our Lord who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, who never had a beginning, who cannot die. Who, why is He worthy of all this praise? For you created all things. You see, matter can be created. Matter can be destroyed. Because there was a moment in a timeless eternity past when all that we know as matter existed not. But it was created by this God who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power ascribed to His name. Simply by His will they existed, we are told. By your will they exist and were created. They all had their beginning because it was a thought in the mind of this one who sits on the throne, who has all this power, and who is honorable and sovereign. Now, chapter 5. I'm moving as quickly as I can. And this vision continues. He says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So the right hand of God contains a scroll. The scroll has writing on both sides, inside and on the back. It's sealed with these seven seals. And as you read through the book of Revelation, you read of these seals being opened by the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says, I saw. And again, this scroll is nothing other than the plan of God, the purpose of God, the eternal decree of God, what God intends history to contain. Everything that God has purposed to occur from that point forward until the end. Now, in this scroll are, are God's purposes. God's will, if you will, is contained here. What God purposes to do. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Notice these words. Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And notice the commentary that John gives concerning his vision. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now notice, who is worthy is the question. And the commentary comes back from John. No one was able to do it. Because worthiness... And ability, in this case, are set alongside each other as virtual synonyms in this, in this matter. And so he says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And you understand that 
involved with opening the scrolls and reading the scrolls contents to looking into these things and to examining these things involved with that was not just the ability to break wax seals. But it was the ability, once those seals were broken and this scroll unrolled, it was to see to the accomplishment of everything the scroll contains on its inside and on its other side. Well, no one, he says, I wept much because here is the purpose of God that that God has all sealed up and it's all planned. But who can unfold this thing? Worthiness and ability are alongside each other here. He said, I wept because no one was found who has the, the worthiness or the ability to break the seals and open it up and look at it and then see to it. But one of the elders, one of the 24, said, do not weep. Look. Do not weep. The plan of God doesn't have to be scrapped. The plan of God doesn't have to remain undone. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll to loose its seals. And brethren, shall we say, once He's opened the scroll, He's able to read it and He's able to accomplish it all. And that's why the man could say to John that you don't need to weep, my boy. Look, we have a conqueror. We have one who has prevailed and one who will see to the unfolding and the accomplishment of all the plan and purpose of the Almighty God, the one who sits on the throne. And we are told that I looked and in the midst of the throne... Right there in the seat of all power. And with the four living creatures, you know what they're saying. Holy, 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 they say. And in the midst of the elders, and there they are bowed down. They've cast their crowns. They're worshiping the Lord. And in their midst stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all, all the earth. Then he, the lamb, came. And imagine this sight. He comes up and he ascends to the throne of his eternal Father and takes from his right hand the scroll and can as it were say Father I've got it I can do this now when he had taken the scroll out of the hand as it were from his father what happens? The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they who have been worshiping Him who sits on the throne, turn the focus of their worship to that one who has received the approval of the one who sits on the throne. The one to whom His purpose and plan has been conferred. They turn their, their worship attentions to the Lamb. And they begin to worship Him. And each one having a heart and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And here they sing this song. And what do they sing to the Lamb? You're worthy. Can you say the word with me one more time? Worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. Now, the Lamb is worthy, brethren, and able to take this scroll to open its seals, unfold and accomplish the purpose and plan of God. Why? The word for begins the explanation in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for 
you were slain. You submitted to death. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That's why you are worthy to be worshipped. That is why we will take our harps and play praises to you. That is why we will pour out the bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the people of God. We'll pour them out for your sake and pour them out to your glory and your honor because you're worthy to do this. You are worthy to see to the accomplishment of all that the one who sits on the throne desires to have done because of your completely successful redeeming death for people out of all mankind. Now, he says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Many angels joining in, the living creatures, again, who, what they are specifically, I'm not sure. If they're the leaders of the, the angelic host, it appears that some of the other angelic host joins in, and the elders, and a number of them, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. You folks who do math, then thousands of thousands, and I think some would say myriads of myriads, again, saying with a loud voice, what do they say? Again, can you say it with me now? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive. And this word receive means that these things be ascribed unto Him. Now I ask you this. Do you think it matters what you, in your little human faltering tones, in your little voice, does it matter what you say? Does it matter what comes out of your mouth? Jesus talked about how that it was out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Is that right? So, does it matter what comes out of your mouth? Notice, they said, and they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. And he, he was slain. He's worthy to receive power and riches. Now, do, I ask you this. If you say the Lamb is powerful, do you make Him more powerful? No, you don't. Not one whit. I mean, what you say is not going to change the reality, but it acknowledges and gives glory to the Christ for in whom this is the reality that He is worthy, that power and riches and wisdom be ascribed to Him. And I want you to look at Him. Look at Him walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Watch Him as He walks through Nazareth. And He steps up and He takes the scroll and reads from Isaiah 61 and tells them this day, this Scripture's fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't look like something powerful. They, they're ready to kill Him. They take Him out to the brow of the hill. They won't acknowledge Him. I ask you, will you acknowledge Him? Behold Him on the cross as our uh, brother has preached to us so recently of the sufferings of our Savior and all that He endured for the people of God. But behold Him and tell me that looks like power. If anything ever looked like weakness, it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet by it, by that which God's Word 
deems in a facetious way the foolishness of God, it is more powerful than all that this world can give you and do for you because you can fill up to the brim with the philosophies of this world and die in your sins and perish in an unending eternity in hell. But you know what? You can come and find yourself at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and not know much more than two plus two and your immortal soul will be saved by the power and grace of God through what the world deems foolishness, but it is indeed the wisdom of God. Well, I'm almost sidetracked. The Lamb is worthy that these things should be ascribed unto Him. Amen? And notice then, there is a universal doxology that breaks out. And verse 13 of chapter 5 Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and dig them up under the earth. Every creature and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying in this universal doxology, everything that had a voice. And things that don't have a voice, things that barely have a mind, are somehow given the ability. And what do they say? They say, blessing and honor and glory be to Him who sits on the throne, that is to God Almighty the Father, and to the Lamb. So see here the Lamb's co-equal glory. His co-equal eternal glory alongside the Father who sits on the throne and in the universal doxology. Obviously, the blessed spirit is not omitted but assumed. But here, brethren, blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him. And listen, that, I would say, should flow from us, should pour out of us if we ever really understand who it is that is God. Who it is that has died for us and secured our redemption by taking upon Him true human flesh and in that human flesh the eternal, glorious Yahweh God going to a cruel cross and suffering and dying and drinking the dregs of death as a man. I say to you, if we ever really get it, we will break forth along with these in the universal doxology. Then the four living creatures, what do they say? They say, Amen. If the angels can say it, I don't know why we can't. Amen? Amen. And the 24 elders fell down again. All the redeemed of God in their representatives fall. May I say to you, brethren, if you are leaders of the people of God, let them see you fall down and worship Him. Let them see you walk in humility before this God and not in the pride of the flesh. But notice the 24 elders, the leaders of the people of God, the rep, they fall down. And worship Him who lives forever. The four living creatures, all the redeemed of all ages, worship Him who is worthy, since He is eternal. 
He can't die, you understand. He can't fizzle out. He can't, he can't wear out. He can't be, come to an end. So here may I ask you as you assess with me the situation. Is the eternal creator and the Lamb who redeemed the elect, is this God worthy to be worshipped? Amen. He is worthy. He is worthy to be worshipped. So now the second focus, if I may. I think we've established reasonably well, whether you agree or I agree, all the angels of God agree. The angels of God, the true representatives of all the true elect people of God, redeemed of all ages, Old Testament, New Testament, from to the time of Adam until the last of the redeemed will be called to Jesus Christ. They all say, He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to re- that all these things be ascribed to Him. Well now, secondly, our unworthy responses to difficult providences... I get that, if you will. Our unworthy responses to difficult providences make us hesitant to offer robust praise to God. I want you to think about that. I read from Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. Ezra's about to pray. And as he begins to pray, he says, these are his opening words. Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Brethren, our unworthy responses to difficult providences make us hesitate to offer robust praise to God. We can be in our praise to God much like this brother was at this moment when he was about to pray. And he said, I'm too ashamed to lift my face up to you, my God. Now, you bear with me for a moment. I think we are almost all effusive with complaints. They pour out of us. Now, we may complain to God in our closet. But mostly we complain out loud to people. It's as though we may think, well, the king probably won't hear us. But the rabble may be sympathetic to us. If something doesn't go our way, we are much too comfortable saying so. By words or expressions or by the ways we behave, inasmuch as the whole world cares to listen to our tirades, we freely tell the whole world, the sworn enemies of our God... That we're not happy. We're not happy with Him. We're not happy with the ways He's dealing with us. I am most certainly not blessed 
That's our witness to those around us concerning the goodness and faithfulness of our God. In fact, we declare that we are fairly miserable and we don't care much who knows it. How many times we've said, I don't care what anyone thinks. To say anything else would be dishonest. Life's not turning out so well. And God's ways with me are disappointing. I really didn't expect that He would deal with me like this. We've had too many hardships and disappointments and trials as though some strange thing happened unto us. We're irked at life. And we are rather irked at this sovereign God's dealings with us. And instead of producing graces and character, our ungodly responses to hard providences tend to produce other things in us. Not graces and not character. Instead of having character, we become characters. But on those rarer occasions, and I think there are those occasions when we recognize unexpected kindness and we receive these unearned delights and when it comes to expressing thankfulness and praise and giving glorious acknowledgement to God's abundant mercies to the same whole world that listened to us just lately carp and rant against God's providence well instead of being robust in our praise we're understandably shy about letting anyone hear us praise God Well, it just doesn't seem appropriate that we should wear our religion on our sleeve. One shouldn't be quite so overt with one's religion. But the reality is, I think, could it be that we know that anyone who's heard us bemoan our lives lately would suspect that if we sang real loud the praises of God, that we're nothing more than a spoiled brat religionist? Who has a momentary gratitude, just like a spoiled child who is much indulged and always eventually gets its way if it whines and gripes enough. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy. I I love you so much, Daddy. Well, if the same God we praise this way for His goodness should revisit us with trials or give us hard work to do, Make it difficult for us. We have any leanness of any sort to deal with. Then those who've heard us bless the Lord, oh my soul, know very well that they'll soon hear us sounding like an angry atheist again before long. Carping and complaining against the providence of this God we lately praised and blessed. But now we barely can stand Him. I don't know if it's getting close to any of you, but Job's response stands in stark contrast to this. His response to, I would say, the hardest of providences is not the common response. After losing his entire estate, all of his wealth, upon hearing of the death of all his beloved children, and all this in a single day, we say, well, he was just in shock. But we read of our brother's resolve in his shock, if you want to call it that. He arose, tore 
his robe as an evidence of his great grief, he shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave all this that I had, all this that was, that all of this that was an enjoyment to me. Still, it came from the Lord. He gave it, and He is taken away. Praise be to the name of the Lord. In all this, we are told, Job did not sin nor. Charge God with wrong. You have worship, not amid difficulty. You have worship, in this case, amid devastation. Now, some of you may think, well, if I was devastated and there was nothing else to do, no options whatsoever, then maybe I could be like Job. But when God only partially devastates me and I've got this part of my life that's very difficult and yet all these other things still seem to keep going and they all keep crying my name and saying, give me some attention, give me some attention, give me some attention. Well, again, it's almost like it would be easier to be utterly devastated than to be partly devastated because, again, if you're only partly devastated, everybody looks at you and says, wonder why they're whining so. Wonder why they're complaining so. It seems like there was a moment in the old movie Driving Miss Daisy where she, in the early moments of the relationship between her, supposedly an elderly Jewish lady uh, who uh, had come to, a, I suppose, a textile fortune in the South along with her family and her uh, soon-to-be driver that she wouldn't let drive her very much, you know, to, to begin with. Uh, she's complaining about how she knows the value of a penny and this and that and the other. And the, the driver's response is, after she complains for, you know, two or three minutes, it's like, but you do it all right now. And it's like, you know, there are a lot of folks who look at us and look at our lives and they think after they hear us complain and then they see that we drive home in a reasonably nice automobile and we, they see our wife and our children or at least they see somebody that we love and somebody loves us. And it's we're not utterly devastated and yet we still have these complaints against God's ways with us because we're not getting what we want. We're not, it's not going the way we want. But in all, the, all of this, Job was devastated and he worshipped God. I would ask you how many of us have lost far less and yet have in our hearts charged God with wrong. I put my trust in you. I'm, I'm looking to you. And furthermore, I see plenty of people that profess to know you and love you who are very unfaithful to you. I see plenty of those folks walking about. And they seem to have it easy. And it doesn't seem that your corrective rod is upon them. But it seems to me that you won't leave me alone in regard to one difficulty after another. And so we complain about those things that are hard in our lives. And charge God. I think it may be that one great reason that we are so sparing in our words of praise to God. We're very self-conscious, aren't we? Because somebody sitting nearby may know. That's the same mouth I heard just three weeks ago. Talking like there was no God on the throne. It may be that we 
out of our fear of utter embarrassment. Again, God and all the people who know us know if we've been bitter in our complaining against God and His providence. Now, I do have something to say to you in particular about this and to me. We know, at least you've been taught and I think have come to embrace and understand that God is a God of providence. We believe in the sovereignty of God. And in this matter, it's as though our knowledge shames our faith. Because stone cold standing square on our feet from an intellectual perspective, we can argue for the sovereignty of God. And I'm telling you what, we can, anyone who denies the absolute sovereignty of God over anything, we can essentially biblically show them that they have nothing but dust to eat for supper. But when it comes to living it in our hearts, our emotions, our affections, our day-to-day relationships within our homes, within our, in our workplaces. Listen, living in the reality of the sovereignty of God when the providences are not easy. There's where our faith is put to shame by our knowledge. Knowledge of God's sovereignty exceeds our faith in the sovereign God. And it ought not to be. Have we regarded God as unloving? As even hard-hearted toward us and our plight? Have we in our hearts charged Him with wrong? I think it may be possible that we can't praise the Lord because we're a little ashamed of ourselves. And we know that someone who has said and thought the things that we've said and thought lately, we might want to very gradually work our way back into praise because it's like, I know you're worthy, but I'm unworthy. I'm humiliated by what I've done. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit and move on. The Blessed Trinity is worthy to be worshipped. We know this. And often we are made self-conscious and hesitant to pour forth worship Because we've humiliated ourselves by a weak faith and by a self-indulgent attitude concerning ourselves. What's the answer? What's the answer to the problem? The truth, brethren, will set you free. It may feel like a wire brush sometimes, but the truth will ultimately set you free. And grace will enable you. And I would say, in, in, by way of some application, since He is worthy to be praised, and we may have been humiliated because of our unwill, unworthy responses to difficult providences, we need to essentially move the junk out and make some room for God's praise. One reason we don't have room in our lives for some good things is we've got too much junk sitting around in our lives. Listen, if someone came and offered to you a beautiful new uh, set of furniture or whatever, most of you are going to say, if they did, where am I going to put it? Because you've got something in the way of something better. So I'm just suggesting if we recognize something as junk, we don't need to wait Until someone offers us the new furniture, we need to go ahead and move out the junk and see what God will do for us in terms of something that isn't junk. Does that make sense? 
It should make sense. First of all, in the process of moving out the junk, making some room in our lives for God's praise, let us remember concerning our trials that all the trials of all God's elect are, number one, necessary. 1 Peter 1.6 talks about our trials if needs be. God only sends trials and difficulties and stresses and leanness. He only sends those things if He deems it necessary. So when you find that something is hard, what you need to do is look to that God you love and you know has loved you and thank Him for what He saw was necessary. And then you can cry to Him a little bit and say, Lord, this is hard and I'm finding it difficult, but I'm still looking to You. And I'm hoping in you. And I know that beyond all this and even through this thing, you've seen this as necessary. It must be necessary. There's one. And two, it is for our good. Romans 8, 28. I mean, in that golden chain of redemption, what goes right before it is the assurance that all things work together for good to them who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Remember, He is the God of providence. And even our difficult providences are necessary. And they work together for our good. So we need to rehearse the truth. The truth we know to our hearts. So that we can live by it. Not just think about it. But really live in the truth that our God is the God of the sovereign God of providence. Secondly, that we might see our lives aright. Oh, that we might see our lives aright through the corrective lens of God's Word and truly possess the faith of God's elect. We say we're His. Oh, that we might possess the faith of those who are truly His. Then we won't lose heart. And we will have a well-founded hope that is secure, knowing that all our trials are ordained trials, right? All our trials are ordained trials. And all our joys can only thrive in Jesus Christ, both through them and in spite of them. You understand, we are to have joy through trials and in spite of them, having our vision corrected by the truth that God has revealed. You see, natural sight is never going to see this. It's going to take spiritual insight, spiritual sight that's been corrected by the revelation of God's mind in His Word. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. May I ask you, brethren, do any of you know about this? Experiencing these simultaneous realities. The outward man is perishing. Any of you know anything about that? 
Do you know what it is to live a life where it feels like that as to the outward man and to the life you're living in this world, it seems like you're you're losing ground every day. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, it seems like the outward man is perishing. Yet, the inward man at the same time, yet... In spite of that and through that, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's like you wake up and the mercies of God are new to you today. And all of yesterday's troubles, though it certainly put a little bitter pill in your drink, understand this. All of those things, you still wake up knowing that your God is God. You know that His love won't change. His heart towards you won't change. You know that He's God you see. And the inward man is renewed day by day. Thank God for day by day renewal of the inward man. Notice he goes on. For our light affliction. Now here's a fellow that's described in the, and will come in this book, I believe, to describe all these things that he's been through. And I'm telling you what, none of you, I know I wouldn't chalk it up as light affliction. And yet notice, he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Think about it. Think about the troubles of this life. They're only for a time. They're only for a moment. There is an eternity that will greet us. A joyous, full, happy eternity that awaits us. But listen, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working For us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now listen, I know most of us feel like our lives are far from glorious. We know about light affliction and maybe a little heavier than that sometimes, at least from our point of view. But here, get your vision corrected. Put on the Apostle Paul's glasses and say, oh, it's fuzzy. Who? What? Oh, oh, I see now our light affliction, which is but momentary. It's only for a little while. But understand, even in the midst of this light affliction, when the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. God is faithful, is He not? He is faithful, brethren. And notice, He says, while we, verse 18, do not look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. And that's, that's, that's how this happens. How can we see things this way? Again, we're not looking at what appears to be reality that we see, but we're looking to the reality that does not yet appear, but shall indeed appear because of the promises of our God. The things which are seen, the things around us, the outward man is perishing, those things are temporary. It can only last for a while, but the things which are not seen, the things promised to us in the gospel and our happy future, it's these things are eternal. The things that the gospel promises to us and upon which we set our hope are not temporary. They are eternal things. Must move on. Thirdly, we must not succumb to faithlessness. We must not permit 
the adversary, Satan, to get any stronghold in our minds to make us question or doubt the glorious being and the goodness of our God and Redeemer. Our sovereign Lord is worthy to be praised, worthy to be honored, worthy to be owned as our God and as our hope. He's worthy to be praised, brethren, now. And while the outward man is perishing, while the outward man seems to suffer and go down, God is worthy to be praised today. God is crying out to us as it were through the revelation of Scripture. Praise me today, my child, today. Now, lift up your voice. Whether If you can't shout, then whisper. But whisper is praise. He's worthy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, are we going to opt out? Are we going to say, except when things are hard? Except when your bills are more than your paycheck? Except when, when life is hard and when my wife is upset with me or my, my husband doesn't seem to love me like he once did or my children seem very disobedient or they seem very careless and they just seem to have no interest in the things of God and I've prayed for them for years and then I've prayed for God's blessings on this thing and it seems like it won't come. I've prayed on this thing and it will seem rejoice always, he says. So that means it has to be something more than circumstantial. Wouldn't you agree that real Christian joy has to be something based on something more than circumstantial things? Pray without ceasing and in everything, give thanks. Give thanks. In everything you give thanks. Why? Because of who your God is. Not because everything's going good, but because... Your God is good. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concern you. If you're going to do God's will, follow God's will, these things are not only His will for you, they are within your power to obey. You're given this command. This is your God's will. Do it. Rejoice, pray, and in everything give thanks. <clears throat> we return to the text that we began with. Psalm 34, 1. Very quickly. I will bless the Lord at all times. The word bless means praise. I will ascribe glory to the Lord. To I am that I am. When? At all times. So we don't get to go on vacation from praising God. At all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. In every circumstance, he says, His praise shall be continually in my mouth. Again, just like the angels... Who don't rest day and night. When you wake up in the middle of the night. If you ever wake up in the middle of the night. I remember there was a time when I slept like a stone. Never woke up in the night. But when you wake up in the night. Praise God. When you wake up in the morning. Bless His name. When you're walking through the day. Give glory to God. You see. Do these things continually. In your mouth. You say. But I think it. I think it. In your mouth. Listen. Most of the other stuff that comes into your mind finds its way into your mouth, doesn't it? Dude, I don't like that. That didn't taste good. We fill our thought with our mouth rather with what our thought was. 
I mean, you know, I don't like that skirt. That just doesn't look right with that. I mean, what we see, we, we, it finds its way into our mouth. Why not the praise of our God? Maybe we're a little embarrassed. Maybe we need to quit doing some of those things that would embarrass us. If we went right from doing that to go into a worship service to glorify God and we knew we had to lift up our voices in strong tones to praise God. Listen, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast. Yes, you're to say boastful things concerning the Lord. And what happens? The humble will hear it and be glad. So you have individually, I will bless the Lord. Continually, at all times. Now, verse 3, corporately, he, he invites people. He says, oh, magnify the Lord together with me and let us exalt His name together. So you see, there's an individual thing and then there's a corporate thing. It's, don't you enjoy coming together? Now, if you were a little shy about lifting up your voice strong all by yourself, your brethren come together with you. And you both share the very common experiences. Your heart's broken at times. You have difficult things. You all have probably, like me, humiliated yourself, embarrassed yourself. You've complained against the God of providence because of His providence. And it's like you're a little... But you know, sometimes my brother can come along and put his arm on me and pray with me and encourage me. And he can help me and find my voice again. To shame my sins and praise my Savior. Psalm 65. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. Now what is Zion? Well, Zion's a pet name for the people who were natives of Jerusalem. Who loved the worship of God. Zion was their pet name for a precious place. It's like talking about home. Now, some of you have ever been away from home, and, but it's like home that you remember in the sweetest, best way. And praise, they say, is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. I ask you, is praise truly awaiting our God when we gather in corporate worship? Notice Psalm 87 too. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. And that's the place where the people of God would go up to worship together. You read those Psalms of Ascents. Psalm what 120 through about 134 thereabouts. You read these little short Psalms that the people of God when they were pilgrims would sing. As they would come up to the place of worship. Coming up those hills around until they came to Zion. They came to the gates that led into the place where they would worship God. Notice, the Lord says He loves the gates of Zion. The place where people come for corporate worship more, and this is comparative, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Now I ask you, do you think God loves you personally? He sure does. He surely does. But do you know that God loves the place where you come together as His people under the headship of Jesus Christ to worship Him? He loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob, more than all our individual houses. When all our houses send out its worshipers and we come together, whether it's in a home or whether it's in a park or whether it's in a place like this, when the people of God come together to lift up their praise and worship to God, the Lord is 
pleased. And He loves to be worshipped. I ask you, are we, as we gather in the place of worship, are we the kind... And listen, glorious things are spoken of you, O city. Are, are glorious things spoken of you when you come together? Are your gatherings the kind of gatherings that all the people of God just, they just look forward to because they know they're coming to praise God. They're coming to worship God. And they know they're coming into this place where God Himself says, I love this when you folks come together to lift up my name together. Well, finally, the law of God, and I want to finish this way, the law of God, when taken to heart, may bring us to weeping. And the reality is, brethren, when the truth comes, and it just comes and hits us, it really has a thud, and it may absolutely knock us to the ground. The law of God brought the people of Israel to mourning. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For, listen now, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. There is a time to mourn and grieve. There is a time to hear the voice of the law. There is a time to bleed in your heart and weep before God and repent of your sins. But, oh, brethren, there is a time for us to set aside our mourning and our grieving. Set it aside because the Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And in Him, we who believe in Him, we have prevailed as well. Our sins are conquered. They are all in the tomb, never to rise again to condemn us before our God. This is a day when we ought to set aside our mourning and lift up our voices and praise God. Listen now, you may stand to your feet as far as I'm concerned. It's time to stand. All the Levites, come on, stand up here. The Levites quieted all the people. That means the people were in turmoil in their hearts. But they, they quieted them down. They were upset. I can imagine the heaving and the crying and the wailing. Some of you have heard Jewish people, even in our time, wail. And it's some terrible sounds. But they quieted all the people and they said, Be still. Quiet yourselves down. For the day is holy. It's a different day. Do not be grieved. Listen now. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions. What did that, what's that mean? It means they were sharing what they had with others and rejoiced greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. May I say to you, brethren, if you understand the words that have been declared to you this day, you will not grieve or mourn, but you will rejoice greatly because you understand the gospel that's been declared to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us bow our hearts together. Pastor. Father, we do give thanks to you that you have...
renewed our hearts today. That there is the, the joy of being the people of God. The joy of knowing this God who is worthy to be praised. And Lord, we confess that we have, we have been far too passive in our praise to you. Oh Lord, far too willing to be dictated by our emotion or dictated by our circumstances rather than the reality of who you are and what you've done. So Lord, we ask you to renew afresh today in our hearts. Praise, worship, adoration, ascribing to you all these things of which you are due. For your name's sake and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.